I think he said to himself, I can do anything I want. You know, he, 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 no one questions anything. Um, there, it seems that the normal parliamentary accountability mechanisms are uh, obliterated. So I think the group of them around Trudeau said, we, we, we now have unfettered access to the public purse with no scrutiny. And anybody who asks us a question about it, we'll simply accuse them of nasty partisanship in, a, in the middle of a pandemic. And, uh, and we'll assert our pure motives and we'll do whatever the hell we please. That's what I think, that, that's where I think their headspace was. And frankly, I think if the, if the media had been doing its job, he probably would have been on his toes and he probably wouldn't have been so sloppy in his corruption. How can Canadians hold the minority Liberal government to account? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shut down Parliament just as he shut down the economy in response to COVID-19, choosing instead to hold daily press conferences with hand-selected friendly journalists from the mainstream media. There was no oversight, no accountability, and no transparency. Just daily propaganda sessions with liberal journalists lobbying softball questions at their favorite liberal celebrity. Can you describe specifically what your self-isolation means, both for you and your family and your wife? You're, you're outside right now. Uh, is your wife still going outside? Is your family still going outside? What does self-isolation actually mean for your family? And what are you telling your children about the heightened sense of concern uh, in the country? And also, how are you explaining some of the political decisions that you're making? Okay, that is the Prime Minister of Canada on this Tuesday morning, and I'll just say what everyone is thinking before we get into the meat of what he said. Yes, he did get a haircut. When Canadians began to learn about the damage that Trudeau had done during his time, racking up half a trillion dollars in debt, handing out the doomed $900 million We Charity contract, and the mysterious case of 20,000 missing infrastructure projects, Trudeau shut down the investigations by proroguing Parliament. On today's episode of the True North Speaker series, I sit down with one of the few figures in Canada willing to challenge our Prime Minister and hold him accountable for his scandalous ethics violations and the disastrous fiscal policies that put our entire economy, our entire country at risk. Pierre Polyev is the Conservative Member of Parliament for the Ottawa-based riding of Carleton, where he's been the MP since 2004. Polyev serves as the Conservative Party's finance critic and he was instrumental in drawing out new information and exposing the many contradictions and changing narrative Trudeau offered during the We Scam testimonies. I really enjoyed watching him hold Trudeau directly accountable during his parliamentary committee hearings, and I really enjoyed sitting down with Pierre to talk about all of the problems facing Ottawa and how a conservative government would offer a better vision for Canada. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me know what you think in the comments section and please share this video with friends and like-minded Canadians. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming on to the speaker series. It's great to have you today. Great to be with you. Well, so before we get into all of the, the politics and, and everything that's going on in Ottawa these days, I, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background. So you are a Ottawa area MP. You've been representing the people of Nepean for what, 15 years now? Since 2004. And uh, I, it was it was Nepean Carleton. I unfortunately lost Nepean in the redistribution. So I'm now on the Carleton area, which is sort of southwest Ottawa. Okay. Interesting. And but before that, you are from Alberta, which I was just reading your your background, your history. It seems like you've really cut your teeth in Alberta politics. Uh, you were just mentioning off camera that you worked for the Byfields, uh, who were the founders of the Alberta Report. So why don't you tell us about young Pierre in the early days uh, working in politics? Well, when I was a teenager, I went to a few meetings uh, for Ralph Klein's Progressive Conservatives and Preston Manning's Reformers and met Preston Manning when I was 16 years old. He represented my Southwest Calgary neighborhood in Parliament and um, got an intern working for a local Calgary MP when I was 16 or 17 years old and uh, made 600 bucks a month. Uh, and uh, it was an hour and a half bus ride every, both each way. Um, so, uh, that was how I started off in politics. It was not glamorous, but I was thrilled at that age to get involved. I then became Jason Kenney's intern when I was, uh, 18 or 19 years old. 
And uh, he was one of my great mentors. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I moved to Ottawa to work for Stockwell Day. And uh, not long after that, I decided to take uh, a crazy gamble and run for a conservative nomination for the newly merged party in an Ottawa seat that we hadn't won since 1984. And uh, I've been elected six times since. So tell, tell us a little bit about the riding that you represent, because I think a lot of people in Western Canada, you know, they think of Ottawa as a very left wing kind of government town. Uh, and yet you, you seem to represent a conservative stronghold. So, so tell us a little bit about the riding that you represent. Well, um, it is uh, basically south of the airport. Uh, and then it goes west all the way to where the Ottawa Senators Stadium is on the 417 Highway. Uh, it's, I'm going to estimate about 75% of my residents are suburban and about 25% are village or semi-rural. All of my riding is in the city of Ottawa. Um, there are a lot of government workers, fair amount of high-tech employment as well. Um, there's a small farming uh, population that sort of shrinks a little bit each year, unfortunately. But... Um, you know, it's um, it had not been conservative since 1984. Uh, the conservatives had lost it in 88, 93, 97, 2000, uh, before I won it in uh, 2004. So it can be a bit of a swing riding. It's gone both ways. And right now it's the only blue riding in on the federal map in the city of Ottawa. We've got seven liberals and one conservative. So I'm the chair of the Ottawa Conservative Caucus. <laughs> Well, good for you. I mean, I think that the Conservatives definitely have their work cut out for them in, in Ontario in general. I, I think that's one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is that it really feels like the country is divided. I saw some polling that came out last week that basically showed that the Liberals have uh, are more favorable everywhere west of Ontario and everywhere, or sorry, everywhere east of Ontario and everywhere west, uh, the Conservatives are up considerably. And there, there seems to be that divide. So you know, for, for, for Western Canadians watching this podcast, Pierre, what, what is it that Western Canadians don't, don't, don't know or don't really understand about the Ontario voter? Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm in a unique position because my riding is in Ottawa, which is the nation's capital, and it's right on the border with Quebec. So, I, you know, from where I'm sitting in my basement here, I've got five provinces west of me, five provinces east of me, uh, and it gives me a bit of an insight into both sides. Um, you know, I think that uh, the differences are not as great as they seem. We have right now is an extremely divisive prime minister. Uh, you know, we've had uh, we have a conservative provincial government in Ontario, just like people do in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So at a provincial level, we're you know pretty much have the same governing philosophy in charge and victorious in this province as, as you know, the Western Prairie provinces do. Uh, but the difference is that we have a prime minister who's decided to mercilessly wage economic warfare against Alberta, Saskatchewan, parts of northern uh, and um, interior British Columbia with his hostility to the resource sector. So in Ontario, um, the big population centers, uh, Toronto, Ottawa, etc., are not directly resource-driven economies. They haven't felt the brunt yet of that war. They will. I mean, look, Toronto's financial sector has made billions of dollars uh, investing, quite rightly, in the energy sector. So Torontonians will feel the pain uh, if this idiocy goes on. Um, Ottawa uh, residents will feel the pain as well because, of course, the public service work relies on the tax revenues that the resource sector has paid so consistently over so many decades. So the whole country will ultimately suffer from this anti-resource agenda, but Albertans and Saskatchewanians are just the first to, to feel it and thus the first to be justifiably angry about it. You know, I, I read a lot of the sort of Laurentian elite uh, commentary in the, in the major newspapers, and it seems like the consensus is basically that you know, the oil sands are bad for the environment and it's just inevitable that we have to phase them out. And that's just the role of the federal government. And also that a government cannot win power. Uh, they cannot get votes in specifically Quebec, but also Ontario 
uh, without a, a, you know, a green agenda and a very ambitious sort of green environmentalist plan. Uh, do, you, do you accept that premise or what do you make of, of the elites that, that say that? Well, they're not talking to ordinary people. I can say in my riding, I overtly campaign in favor of pipelines. The Energy East pipeline was going to run right through my riding. And uh, I was happy to support it from the very beginning. Um, in fact, my liberal opponent tried to pretend he was for pipelines as well because he knew that that's where the population was. Everyday people understand that pipelines make sense. In, in fact, what a lot of conservatives miss is that Trudeau doesn't overtly or publicly oppose pipelines. He does it in all of his actions. He pretends that he's trying to get them built, but in reality, he uses all the levers of the state to stop it from happening. So he wouldn't be doing that if pipelines weren't popular. You look back at his statements in the House of Commons, he very rarely confesses his real opinion on pipelines. He always says, oh, we're trying to work together with all the different groups and make it happen. And we're going through all the steps and boy, gosh, golly, darn, I'm trying so hard. It just doesn't seem to work out. Meanwhile, he's, he's using all of the bureaucratic machinery to stop it from occurring. But my point here is the population overwhelmingly supports pipelines in every region. There's even strong support in Quebec for pipelines. Um, we know that there's a $14 billion natural gas pipeline and liquefaction project that awaits federal approval in the Saguenay, for which there's overwhelming support by the Quebec government. So there is public support everywhere. And in fact, the, 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 the province that was most devastated to learn that the Energy the Energy East project was killed was actually not Alberta or Saskatchewan, though they were justifiably outraged. It was New Brunswick, because New Brunswickers were going to uh, refine all of that uh, Western petroleum had the pipeline gone ahead. A million barrels a day would have arrived from Alberta in New Brunswick. So we have national support for pipelines. Where we have failed is in properly exposing the fact that, tr that there is a, a single obstacle to pipelines in this country, and his name is Justin Trudeau. That's a really interesting point, and I hadn't really thought of it, but now that I do, you know, when you're looking for examples of how the liberals oppose pipelines, it's usually like something that Gerald Butts said like 15 years ago, or something that Trudeau said sort of sneakily in a French language debate, that they don't sort of overtly come out. And I recall even at the sort of beginning, they, they, they sort of beat their chest and said, look, we've actually had more pipelines approved than the Harper government, which wasn't, wasn't true, but that was sort of the, the line that the liberals took. But it does, Pierre, seem like there is a shift going on. We saw it with Christia Freeland in her sort of first press conference as finance minister, uh, stating that the uh, regrowth or the, the recreation of the economy after the COVID lockdowns here was going to be built on green uh, you know, plans and schemes. And there's been a lot of speculation about what's to come in the upcoming throne speech. So do, do, do you think that, that perhaps the liberals are taking that shift, uh, that they're going to do a sort of far left shift as, as what is sort of being implied in the media these days? Yes, I uh, expect a radical new experiment. Um, Gerald Butts, who effectively is running the government, put together a group of people to write a report on what the post-COVID post -COVID Canadian economy should look like. And surprise, surprise, they came up with a $49.9 billion green plan. I love how it was $49.9 billion. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're buying a T-shirt uh, at, uh, at, the, at the store, they, they don't want to charge you $50. They charge you $49.99 so that you think it's a, a bargain. Um, and, uh, you know, for the, the very, uh, the very low time, a low price with this limited time offer, if you just call this 1-800 number, um, Gerald will sell you a green economy for, for $49 billion. But, you know, I, I can tell you the first thing is if, if you are a liberal insider, you are going to get fabulously wealthy uh, off of this. There will be many millionaires, maybe even a few billionaires uh, that will uh, ha result from uh, this plan if it goes ahead. Uh, there'll be subsidies for phony renewable programs, uh, fake windmill projects, uh, fake solar projects that produce very little electricity. Um, there'll be all kinds of funky new uh, science fiction schemes uh, that don't actually produce energy or output, but th that uh, are dressed up with all the right public relations. Um, basically, uh, you know, if you wanna sell 
a pig in Ottawa uh, over the next several months, paint it green and bring it to Ottawa and Justin Trudeau will buy it with Canadian tax dollars. Um, we saw, we've seen this before, of course, in Ontario, where they had a Green Energy Act and they were paying 90 cents a kilowatt hour for something that was worth three cents. So you can imagine going to a grocery store and paying 90 cents for an item that's worth three cents. Well, obviously, you're going to bankrupt yourself pretty quickly. And the result was it doubled electricity prices. It created something that the Canadian, the Ontario Association of Food Banks called energy poverty, a phenomenon where poor working class people were literally walking into the food bank with their power bill and saying, I, I can't keep the lights on and feed myself. So I'm going to have to come here for some canned goods. Um, and meanwhile, uh, well-connected uh, liberal insiders managed to land these monstrous contracts. So you have millionaires on, uh, on Bay Street making a fortune off of little old ladies who can't afford to uh, turn the lights on in the morning. Um, and this will happen on a grand scale uh, if the liberals go ahead with the schemes they've been speculating and hinting at uh, in the media over the last several months. You know, it's, it's wild to me, Pierre, that after living through the Green Energy Act and living through McGinty and Wynn and what happened, I, I mean, I remember there were news stories every week of, of someone's energy bill where it was like $1,200 a month and, you know, there was just nothing that they could do. It was devastating to so many people across Ontario. And at the same time, we were seeing manufacturing plants shut down, the affordability, you know, not able to compete uh, against, you know, like organizations, like manufacturing groups in the United States. H how is it that we get ourselves to this place where we're going through it again? Like, like, how is it that people in Ontario aren't like, hey, wait a minute, I recognize this. I've seen this before. Uh, maybe we should be a little bit more cautious before we jump in onto this green onto this green plan. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you can answer that question, but isn't there prevailing common sense that we've tried this? It failed massively. Let's not do it again. Well, uh, the government is making the same mistake all over again. It reminds me of Kipling's um, poem in which he said, uh, just as the dog returns to its vomit and the sow returns to her mire, the burned fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. Uh, you know, we, 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 you're right. We know, we know exactly how this ends. Uh, it ends in tears, um, but it ends, uh, it's, there's a very happy ending for a small group of highly influential people uh, that will dress up their latest scheme as green and they will get monstrous grants and subsidies and handouts from various federal departments. Um, and it will all be called uh, investments. Um, although in the real world, if you have a viable investment, you don't need a government handout because it will pay for itself through its resulting revenues. Um, but uh, again, it will, it will uh, vaporize tens of billions of dollars of hard-earned money and make a very small group of privileged and well-connected people extremely rich. Well, that's, uh, that's the liberal story, I think, in a nutshell. Uh, we, we've been talking a little bit about how Trudeau alienates Western Canadians and, and how the country is very divided, but we've also seen a rise in separatism, the separatist sentiment over in Quebec. Uh, that you know the the Bloc Québécois was basically decimated um, and and hardly won any seats whatsoever in 2011. We saw the surge of the NDP over there, uh, but but in the last decade they've sort of creeped back. So maybe you can help us understand like what is it about Justin Trudeau that has led to the rise of of a separatist party in Quebec as well? Well, I just think this uh, centralized approach to governance, so where you got a big powerful PMO in Ottawa that runs the economy and tries to run everybody's lives uh, is a very divisive force. Um, ironically, the, the purpose of it is to pull power inward, but what it does is push people away um, because, you know, humans want to have control of their own lives. That's why Quebec has always been uh, focused, rightly so, on protecting its own jurisdiction and keeping the federal government out of its affairs. So in the sense, uh, I think there's a common cause between Albertans, uh, Western Canadians in general, and Quebecers in the desire to keep the federal government out of uh, their backyard and let the let, and 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 allow people the the, the, the popular sovereignty uh, over their own local and provincial decisions. Um, so again, in a heartbeat, I think it's uh, it's a prime minister who, who who is obsessed with controlling people's lives, and there's this similar backlash in Quebec. 
to the kind that we witness uh, in other parts of the country. It's interesting. Okay, let's let's walk through sort of Justin Trudeau's prime ministership um, because you know obviously he was sort of swept in. He's a famous guy. He had a famous last name, a famous father. His father, you know, for for all the criticism about him, uh, you know, he he was a socialist and he destroyed so much of the Canadian economy. Uh, but, but but at least he was sort of an accomplished individual. He was a lawyer. He was well educated. He had he had you know obviously thought a lot about Canada and the kind of country that he wanted to lead. Justin Trudeau, not so much. Uh, you know, he sort of came in on this sort of celebrity style, you know, famous guy, charismatic, articulate, or whatever. Uh, you know, what, 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 what has the impact of his prime ministership been? He, he's been in office for about five years now. Uh, you know, what, what has changed over those five years? Well, you know, first of all, it's interesting an observation with the left, you know, that the modern left is very elitist um, and uh, intellectually stuck up. Their whole, uh, their whole kind of narrative is that they're smarter than everyone else. That's why they should be running everyone else's life. Um, and they love to denigrate the intellect of conservatives um you know oh you, you must be a, a simpleton if you think that way uh, we're told um but and, and a knuckle dra- a knuckle dragging uh, neanderthal as as bill Morneau once said right <laughs> right exactly You're, you must not be very sophisticated but then they elect this guy who you know conclude uh, confuses decimal with decibel who uh who has a who is a gaff machine who actually acc- accidentally admits that China's is uh, the dictatorship in China is his favorite mo- model of governance. Who thinks budgets balance themselves? Things that everyone agrees, uh, or or should agree, are utterly ridic- ridiculous. And I think that the, the pathology here on the left is that they, they they'd say, look, yeah, he might be a dummy, but he's our dummy, mm-hmm. um, and um, and ultimately he's not running the country. Uh, other people who share uh, the agenda. Of the, of the far left are running it for him, and he's simply uh, a puppet uh, to, to the Gerald Butts uh, establishment. And so I think that's why he's been able to, to the left, which is so intellectually pretentious, um, is happy to have someone as unsophisticated uh, as Mr. Trudeau, is because they, they know that he's ultimately being run uh, by those who share the left-wing agenda. Um, what is the result of this? Uh, it means that a small group of people are getting richer and power, more powerful uh, using the state as their instrument. Um, and uh, they have him uh, fronting it all, a friendly face, um, a, a handsome, modern, open-looking fellow um, is sitting at the front of this, this, this whole apparatus, but behind the scenes, a very well, um, a very sophisticated group of insiders is pulling all the levers and running the government to their own profit and to their own benefit and to everyone else's detriment. Well, you, you're sort of seeing that now with the, uh, you know, just another scandal. I mean, there, it seems like scandal on top of scandal with this government, but the idea that the uh, prime minister's chief of staff's own husband was lobbying the government and ended up walking away with a contract for. I think eighty-four million dollars or something. That 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 that's sort of, you know, to, to to the Canadian out of work who's lost their small business or something like that. You, you know, you look at you look at the sort of insiderness of Ottawa, and you kind of just scratch your head and wonder, like, you know, what 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 is this all for? But uh, to me, Pierre, the thing that I worry about, and I, I honestly don't know what the answer to this question is, is you look at the deficit. I mean, I, I, I'm someone who, uh, you know, very opposed to running deficits. I think governments should be run like businesses or like households, and that the idea of even a modest $10 billion deficit isn't good for the country, that, 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 that even though interest rates are low, you know, we're still paying about 10% of, of total revenue that the government collects just to, you know, service the debt and, and to bondholders. Uh, the the idea of, of of a $400 billion deficit is quite frankly terrifying. And I have no idea how any government would erase that deficit, let alone work towards paying off a trillion dollar debt uh, that, that, that surely will get dumped on the on the shoulders of our children and, and our grandchildren. Uh, how is Justin Trudeau even going to continue governing in this fashion? I mean, he's talking about continuing to, to have a 10% of, of GDP uh, d- deficit rate. 
you know, how is it even structurally f fiscally possible without a massive increase in taxes? Or is, is there something like that coming? Is there, is there a wealth tax coming? Is there a massive increase in taxes? I mean, the top tax rate in Ontario is already over 50%. It's hard to imagine how much higher you can go. But I, 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 just, I just wonder, you know, for you as an elected official and someone who is in, in government, I mean, you're opposition, but you're still representing Canadians. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you tell people about the, 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 the fiscal situation in Canada right now? Well, let, let me just share some, some basic facts and that are actually quite startling. So the government will say, well, we've got a crisis. The COVID shutdown is the reason we have this monstrous deficit. So let, let's compare the deficit to other crises. Uh, in World War I, our, debt to, our deficit to GDP was 9%. In the Great Depression, it was about 6%. In the Great recession of 2008-9, it was about three and a half percent. Right now, our deficit sits at around 17 percent of GDP. So in other words, our deficit as a share of our GDP, so this is automatically adjusted for inflation and for the changed size of our economy, our deficit is now uh, twice what it was in World War I. It is uh, approximately six times what it was during the great global recession. Uh, it is three times higher than it was at its peak in 1932 in the Great Depression. The only time we've ever had a deficit this big was back in 1943 when we had a 23% of GDP deficit. And that was, of course, right smack in the middle of World War II. But the difference there, by the way, is that by 1947, Canada was running monstrous surpluses our soldiers came home with all of the wages they had earned and, and weren't allowed to spend, and they spent it in the economy, and they bought homes, and they built the great generation uh, uh, thereafter, and they gave birth to the baby boomers, et cetera. And we had this surge of, uh, of revenue, and the government didn't spend it. In fact, spending went down, and so we paid off huge amounts of debt. We had surpluses of 5% of GDP in 1947, which would be like, imagine today if we had a $120 billion surplus. That's how big their surpluses were in the post-war period. So yet, people say, the liberals say, oh yeah, but in the war, the deficits were a little bit bigger. Yes, but they paid them off quickly. As soon as the crisis was over, they quickly went back into surplus, paid it off, and we had another 30 years of prosperity as a result. So I'm just giving that as a perspective. Um, so right now, our deficit, our debt, our debt now, move to the debt, is um, it's, it's well over a trillion dollars. We've gone from a debt that was a third of our economy, 30% of GDP, to 50% in just uh, six months. So 30% of GDP to 50% of GDP in six months. To put that in perspective, we hit a debt wall in Canada in 1996 where the world wouldn't lend us any money anymore. And it was basically a financial collapse. The, G, the IMF put up warnings about us. The, the Wall Street Journal called us a fiscal a third world fiscal basket case. That happened when the debt to GDP ratio was 66.6%. So we've eliminated more than half of the buffer between, where, between our previous debt level and the maximum debt we can sustain as a government. We've eliminated more than half of that buffer in six months. So I know I'm throwing a lot of information out, but, but I just want to give a perspective of how, how truly massive these deficits are. They are not, they, they are orders of magnitude bigger, many orders of magnitude bigger than anything we've seen outside of the World War II period before or after. So what's going to happen? I believe Trudeau will try to get a majority. And that once he does that, there'll be massive tax increases. Now you ask what a wealth tax, that's nothing. The wealth tax raises $6 billion, according to the parliamentary budget officer. They, they might claim that that's their big solution. We've got a $380 billion deficit. You're not going to get rid of that with a $6 billion tax. They would need massive new uh, income tax, uh, GST increases, business tax increases, increases in every tax you pay in order to keep spending like this. There is no mathematical way to go on doing what we're doing. Uh, and if and the parliamentary budget officer says so, don't, you don't just have to believe the conservative finance critic. Just the other day, the parliamentary budget officer said 
we've got one, maybe two years like this before we collapse. Um, so um, it is a crisis situation and uh, we're the only party that has foretold this problem and we're the only pro- party that can get the country out of it. Well, it, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talked about the Second World War, Pierre, because the, the, the spending initiatives and the programs that the government would have introduced at the time were by their very nature temporary. You know, the idea was to go and fight a war and, and stop the Nazis and, and protect freedom around the world. Uh, but but what, what we saw with the with the Great Recession or the Great, yeah, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, you know, the Harper government at least tried to make it so that the, temp, the programs were temporary, that the, that the stimulus spending that they introduced and some of the bailouts were, were, were temporary in measure. I think that that's easier said than done. And, you know, certainly what we saw in the United States was just a proliferation of bureaucracy. And that's what tends to happen during these sort of so-called crises when government has to grow to fill the need. So, you know, with with the CERB, I mean, it, first of all, the, the numbers themselves are incredible. I saw in the Globe and Mail last week that I think that uh, household income during COVID fell by $21 billion. But during the same period, government transfers increased by $54 billion. So Canadians may, might have hardly even noticed. Uh, they actually might have been better off during COVID than they were working, you know, night and day to try to pay the bills. Uh, a, a lot of people have suggested that perhaps it's time for the government to introduce some kind of a universal basic income or to transition that CERB uh, benefit over to a universal income. It doesn't, it doesn't really sound like that's sustainable financially, though. Uh, is, is, your, is there a concern uh, on the conservative side that a lot of the programs that Trudeau has introduced are permanent, and if a conservative government were to win, that they would be criticized for you know the, the same vicious line of attacks you get, oh, bringing in austerity and, and cutting and, and, and all these kind of uh, accusations that we see over and over again. Oh, okay, well, that, no, there's lots, a lot in your question. Let me start quickly with your comments on the Harper era uh, stimulus. So the economic action plan was worked out to about 2% of GDP, and uh, we had a deficit uh, of three and a half percent of GDP. So again, right now we're at seventeen percent of GDP in a deficit. So like we're we're, we're just talking orders of magnitude difference, uh, almost six times bigger deficit in relative terms. Again, adjusted for inflation and the size of the economy. Secondly, we did lapse those programs. Every single uh, stimulus program we brought in during the Great Global Recession uh, ended in 2011 and we had real reductions no not just real nominal reductions in spending in every single year that followed in 2012 13 14 and 15 federal government spending actually went down and we did that without by the way cutting health care or education both of which went up so it is possible to manage down the cost of government and relieve taxpayers of their burdens and finally, one last point, we never once raised taxes in the entire 10-year period we were in office. So all of these things are possible. Now, on the um, basic income. So we've had, I've had the parliamentary budget officer cost out various models of a basic income. And there is no model that comes in below $73 billion a year. I mean, the, the cheapest model anyone has been able to put forward was Kathleen Wynne's approach which she did a, a basic income pilot project in Ontario that would pay an individual $17,400 and a, and a couple $24,000. Um, that would be 75% of the poverty rate. Um, so, and it would be phased out at a rate of 50 cents for every dollar a person earned. Um, and so that was the model that she designed. I said, hey, parliamentary budget officer, if we did this federally, how much would that cost? And he said that would be about $73 billion. So that, that is a lot less generous to the CERB, by the way, which is $2,000 per person uh, and $4,000 per couple. So the, uh, the high end, we're looking at $200 billion or higher uh, for uh, a program um, of that nature. So that would be half of the typical budget of the government of Canada. It would be five times what the federal government spends on healthcare transfers. It would be 10 times what we spend on the armed forces. It would be, um, let me think of one last thing. It would be six times what we collect in GST revenues. So, so there, there's no one out there that has any explanation of how you pay for it. And the difference between this idea and so many 
liberal spending ideas is most liberal spending schemes are undesirable. Um, this is mathematically impossible. Unless you're prepared to eliminate um, whole departments and programs and uh, at multiple levels of government to find the, the fiscal space to pay for it, which nobody is proposing, by the way, then there, it is mathematically impossible to pay for it. And and I, I interestingly I don't I have not yet heard the liberals openly advocate for a basic in, income, so it is possible that someone at finance sat them down with a calculator, and very slowly walked them through what, what I just what I just mentioned. Um, but listen, every day I'm shocked. Like I, I I always know I always knew I was more fiscally conservative than these guys are, but every day it blows me away the things the amounts of money they're willing to spend and the things they're willing to spend on. So nothing would surprise me. Well, it's funny because, you know, we just had Bill Morneau as a finance minister for five years. And during that time, you know, we saw a bunch of reckless spending decisions. We saw growth of debt, growth of deficits. Uh, we saw, like I mentioned, the top uh, income tax rate in Ontario go above 50 percent. Uh, but, but now, as soon as he's gone, all of a sudden, it's like he's being remembered as this like fiscally conservative blue liberal. It's like I don't I don't really remember seeing that very much uh, while he was doing doing the job. But Pierre, you, you mentioned that you think that uh, Justin Trudeau is going to try to get a majority government. Do you think with this throne speech uh, coming up here that we are are headed into election season? Because it does feel like Trudeau is in doing a lot of sort of election style announcements, and it almost seems like they're kicking into uh, election mode here. What do you think? I think he needs an election, and there are, uh, I will say, two reasons why he needs an election quickly. One, he needs an election before the money runs out. Um, as I mentioned, the debt levels and the spending levels uh, are unsustainable. The parliamentary budget officer says he's got one, maybe two years. So he needs the election done before the financial collapse occurs so that uh, he, can, he can run on this fairy tale that money will continue to fall out of the sky and everything's free and we'll just put it on the credit card and we won't ever repay that credit card. Um, and he thinks he can swindle an, an election victory off of that fantasy one last time. And then the brutal hard truth will kick in a year and a half later, but he won't care because he'll have a majority. So that's the first reason. Second reason he needs an election is because there are some very ugly truths that are being that he's hiding that will become known soon. Uh, one, uh, the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner, potentially the RCMP and the auditor general are all investigating the Wee scandal. Um, that will not only produce guilty verdicts and in the case of the lobbying commissioner, outright criminal charges in some cases uh, for certain people, but uh, it will also produce reports that will show what went on behind the scenes uh, and I'm sure there's much there, there's much more there than we know of. Uh, the commissioner has the power to, to call documents and people, and it's obstruction of justice to lie to the commissioner. Um, so that's going to come out. There's uh, an investigation into the prime minister's chief of staff's spouse lobbying for government contra government contracts and subsidies, uh, lobbying his, his spouse's office. Um, that is likely to be under investigation, at least by the lobbying commissioner. Um, finally, uh, the auditor general is investigating uh, a, a, what I think is a brewing scandal that no one has noticed, which is that there are 20,000 missing infrastructure projects. So the government has said, we, we have funded 52,000 infrastructure projects. And I said, OK, great. What, give us a list. So they gave us a list with 32,000. So we said, so where's the rest of it? And they say, oh, well, we, we can't tell you, you know, so these are secretive. It's impossible to build an infrastructure project in secret. They're big, loud, noisy affairs. There's guys in hard hats and machines thumping away. You know, if there's an infrastructure project happening, it's not a secret, right? And there would be a list of where, when, how much it costs to build these projects. Um, but they don't have the list, which means that the money went somewhere it shouldn't have. And the Auditor General is looking into exactly that. And I think that report will come out in late spring. Long story short, Trudeau needs an election out of the way before any of this stuff comes out. And that's why I think he's going to push for one in the fall. So you said that that report's coming out late spring. Why is it going to take so long? 
that's the nature of uh, auditor general examinations. Um, you know, they have to track billions of dollars of spending. Um, the purported infrastructure spend is something like $9 billion a year. And so the, the AG has to go through all the departments. These are spread out of all these departments in, the, in Ottawa. They're also involving the provinces and the municipalities. So it just takes a long time. By the way, the Auditor General is underfunded. Um, the AG's office is short about $11 million. It's the one thing Trudeau doesn't want to spend money on is auditors. <laughs> it's yes to everything else. He doesn't, you know, doesn't care who you are or what you're asking for money for. The answer is always yes, unless you're an auditor. In which case, the answer is a firm no. The, the only person in Ottawa who hears that no. Uh. <laughs> he believes in austerity for one office, the auditor general. <laughs> well, I, okay, so let's let's talk about the Wee scandal because I we all watched it uh, with with a lot of interest. I, I feel like you're you're right that there was a lot of liberal MPs and people that were testifying sort of alluding to the fact like, oh, you know, we were just working so hard and it was so crazy and we were just doing our best to, to try to help Canadians during this difficult time, sort of setting up the idea that, sure, we didn't do all the due diligence that we probably should have in, you know, shipping $400 billion out the door in just a matter of a few months. But for, for, for people who maybe haven't been glued to their uh, computer screens watching uh, parliamentary committee testimonies all summer, Pierre, maybe you can just kind of give us a, a, a brief overview of, of the WE scandal. So tell us what happened, how did it happen, and where are we now? Well, what we know now is that in the early part of the pandemic, early April, uh, the Kilberger brothers uh, began aggressively pitching key decision makers in the, the cabinet, the staff, and the bureaucracy on this idea of a social entrepreneurship program. This was going to apparently teach young people how to be entrepreneurs in the social sector. And, you know, they, they went around the hill and no one was really interested. Um, but then, and, and this was going to be a small program, you know, I think it was 20 or $30 million. Um, but little did they know that there was a much bigger prize. Um, and so the government said, well, we might not be interested in your social entrepreneurship program, but we've got this way bigger initiative called a paid volunteer program. Of course, that's an oxymoron. Um, if you're a volunteer, you're not paid. If you're paid, you're not a volunteer. Um, but, uh, you know, Orwell warns that whenever there's an abuse of language, there are other abuses at work. And so anyway, he, uh, the, uh, we brothers say, you know, great, forget about this stupid entrepreneur program we had last week. We'll do a paid volunteer program instead. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were originally trolled by the liberals that the whole thing was cooked up by a bunch of bureaucrats in a Gatineau departmental building. But we learned later that no, 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 it was not cooked up by them at all. It was initiated by Bill Morneau, who had been on an illegal $41,000 vacation with the Wee Brothers. Uh, it was cooked up by Barnish Chagger, who had telephone conversations with Mr. Kielberger and told him uh, to put together a proposal on the subject. It was cooked up by, there were two uh, senior staff, uh, policy advisors in the PMO, one of whom Kielberger credits with having played an important role in designing the whole initiative. So it was cooked up by politicians and their staff. It just so happens, this is the crux of the matter. It just so happens that this is a prime minister whose family had received a half a million dollars from this group. So the group pays the Trudeau family a half million and the Trudeau government pays them a half billion, which is a phenomenal return on investment. They should really be advising Warren Buffett uh, on how to get an ROI because I don't think he's ever produced any kind of return like that. Um, and of course, um, so here we are now, uh, the matter has been before parliamentary committees that have now been shut down due, due to Trudeau's prorogation, but worry not, we're going to reconvene those studies. We're also going, we also have investigations by the lobbying commissioner, the, 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 uh, ethics commissioner and potentially the RCMP, though they never confirm what they're investigating. The, the liberals have this weird ability. I mean, I remember during SNC-Lavalin, uh, Gerald Butts resigned, and presumably he resigned as an admission of some kind of guilt or responsibility 
But during his resignation, he sort of insisted that he had done nothing wrong. And lo and behold, a couple months, he's back working for Trudeau again. This time around, we saw Bill, no, Bill Morneau resign. Uh, but he sort of inexplicably, he, he said that it had nothing to do with this wee scandal that he was at the center of, that he just happened to have wanted to go pursue, you know, an international uh, career with the OECD instead of leading uh, the finances of a G7 country. Uh, so, so at this point, ha- has there been anyone who is, you know, taking responsibility on, on behalf of the Liberals? Is, is there anyone that's admitting blame or are they still insisting that they've done nothing wrong? You know, uh, Trudeau has admitted he should have recused himself, but I think that's a complete distraction. It suggests that he was a passive player and that, that something was brought up to his desk and that he should have got, from, got, up, got up from his desk and walked out of the room. In fact, I think he and his team were the, um, the ones who initiated it all. Uh, so um, he's cleverly apologizing for the smallest part of the offense while trying to, to distance himself from the biggest part, which is that he and his staff actively participated to extend a half billion dollars to a group that had paid his family a half a million dollars. It, it just sort of defies logic as to why they would even want to get involved in this. It seems to me as soon as the decision, the, the funding proposal became public, it was it was immediately a scandal. The media immediately said, well, wait a minute, you know, all of these ties to liberals, all of these family ties to Trudeau and Morno. I mean, you just sort of wonder, like, who, who, who's running things at the PMO? Who's, who's running things in this government where they wouldn't even acknowledge the, the appearance of what would obviously be a conflict of interest in trying to ship, like you said, I think it was half, half a billion dollars to, to it in, 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 mo- in money and then an additional hundred, couple hundred million dollars to actually administer this program. So it was, it was $912 million total. I mean, did, did they not see that this was going to be a scandal in, in the making? No, and I'll tell you why. And, and the book of Proverbs could tell you why. Um, pride precedes destruction. Um, remember, Justin Trudeau was the master of the universe, uh, running the running the universe from his cottage, uh, uh, from his cottage um, front steps uh, in April and May. And this is where I think the media should apologize to Justin Trudeau. Because they filled his head with all this hubris. They, they were going around Ottawa. It's hard to remember this now. But in April, May, and even June, the media had basically taken the position that no one should be allowed to criticize Justin Trudeau. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. To, to, to criticize him would be to be playing politics uh, and to be uh, putting lives on the line. And anyone who criticizes Trudeau is effectively committing treason and endangering public health. They beat up Andrew Scheer. They said, oh, Scheer wants to bring back Parliament. What the hell do we need Parliament for? Uh, don't we all realize that now is the time to just gather around the footsteps of, of uh, Rideau Cottage and let the Prime Minister come out and um, bestow wisdom on us uh, daily? Um, and uh, I was regularly attacked. I would go on Twitter and I would tweet something critical and there would be this these piranhas in the, in the press gallery would come at me and, you know, they'll look at him, he's gone off the deep end, he's Italian, everyone else is rallying around our prime minister now, and here you have this, this black sheep who's out here uh, standing all by himself. And, and, and you know what, I think he said to himself, I can do anything I want. You know, he, 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 no one questions anything. Um, there, it seems that the normal parliamentary accountability mechanisms are uh, obliterated. So I think the group of them around Trudeau said we, we we now have unfettered access to the public purse with no scrutiny, and anybody who asks us a question about it, we'll simply accuse them of nasty partisanship in, a, in the middle of a pandemic, and uh, and we'll assert our pure motives and we'll do whatever the hell we please. That's what I think. That, that's where I think their headspace was. And frankly, I think if the if the media had been doing its job, he probably would have been on his toes, and he probably wouldn't have been so sloppy in his corruption. Uh, well, maybe maybe the media is doing a service to Canadians after all, then by letting him have his guard down. I I, I totally remember that because I remember a couple uh, columns coming out of the Toronto Star basically saying, 
Why do we need question period? Uh, the, 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 the government gets held to account every morning by these reporters asking questions. And it's like, you know, True North did an analysis of those questions that were asked. More than half of them were coming from the CBC. You know, they were they were positive in nature. They weren't asking questions about, you know, and anything that was serious about government. It was always like, you know, hey, how, how was your weekend? How are you coping? Did you get a haircut? You know, these kind of questions. So uh, what one one last question about the WeScat. It seems like a lot of times with these scandals, that the cover-up is worse than the crime. And I think what we saw right before Parliament was probed, uh, there was a document dump. So I think you got 40 or 50,000 emails. Most of them were heavily redacted. And, and you made that point that, you know, we, we don't really know what's in these documents. But of the things that weren't redacted, the timeline kind of came into place. And it seemed like there were some major contradictions between what the Liberals had said uh, and, and what really happened, particularly your point about how the civil service wasn't really the one recommending it. It seemed like it was more something that was led by Minister uh, Chagger. But, you know, part, part of the issue is that, you know, by the time Justin Trudeau came and testified, he, he kind of was giving a different answer than he had been for the previous few weeks. All of a sudden he was telling us something new. And it's like, well, you know, why is the Prime Minister saying new information now when this has been in the press for a month? Do, do, do you think that, the, that the, the Liberals were sort of trying to be too cute that if they had come out from the get-go and just explained what would have happened, Canadians would have forgiven them, but it was because of the sort of uh, the evolution of the storyline and the evolution of, you know, when did Justin Trudeau find out, when did the civil service recommend these, this, this contract, that that's ultimately what's going to, going to get them in trouble here? I think so. I mean, look, the, the story, the truth is ugly in this one. I mean, whenever you have a prime minister's family getting paid a half a million dollars and then he turns around and hands a half billion to the group, that paid them, uh, you've got a serious scandal, uh, potentially a criminal one. So there's no doubt they had big trouble based on the facts. But you're quite right. Um, covering up things that were ultimately going to come out has just made it worse. You know, you look at, at Chagger, um, she comes to our committee, denies that she ever met with uh, or spoke with the, with the Kielbergers uh, about the Canada Student Service Grant. And it turns out she did. Um, we have uh, the, the prime minister saying his office wasn't involved in the decision. Well, we have correspondence showing that two of his senior advisors were directly involved. One of them helped design the very program that we're talking about. Uh, you know, we have uh, Bill Morno's office. Bill Morno saying basically, oh, it had nothing to do with me. I was just um, the minister responsible, but it was all the bureaucrats. Well, now we know that by the bureaucrats' own internal correspondence that they said, that uh, he was that the minister's office was insisting on it and that they were quote besties besties <laughs> his, his office was besties with the we with the we brothers uh and that's a quote um you know the bureaucrats who are supposedly in, enamored with this program called it a quote shit show that's a quote right out of the, the email correspondence um the uh they you know trudeau said oh the bureaucrats told me there was no other organization with the capacity to run this program, except for we, well, we now have Treasury Board Secretariat bureaucrats who said they didn't believe we could run the program. So it's it just all of these lies that are so obviously contradictable, for which there's documentary evidence. I don't even, I don't know why they bothered telling all these lies. They should have just come out and said from the get-go, look, um, we got excited. We did something we shouldn't have. There was an obvious conflict of interest. It was all our fault. Uh, you know, give us a good licking in the press for a week and then we'll try to move on. That's, I think, the better, it would have been the better strategy. They still would have been in a lot of trouble. They would have been found guilty. But at least there wouldn't be this whole series of lies that have been exposed little by little each day. So that, that leads me to a, another thought that I have, and I, I hear from a lot of Canadians about this. It, it seems like Justin Trudeau really is above the law. He, he acts like he's above the law. He has the sort of arrogance that he is. He has repeated ethics violations. He repeatedly gets told by the ethics commissioner that he has violated the Conflict of Interest Act. And yet there doesn't really seem to be any repercussions. You know, he has a slap on the wrist, a minor fine. I mean, if even if he is found guilty of, of violating, again, the Conflict of Interest Act with this WE scandal, you know, it, will, it won't lead to him actually losing his, his role as prime minister. So what, what can the government do to hold 
Trudeau accountable? You know, is, is, is it creating another set of laws? Is, it, is, is there anything that, that can be done to actually stop an individual who is a repeat offender of, of these acts that are designed to hold these politicians accountable? Well, look, I, I was the parliamentary secretary who passed the Accountability Act. It was my job to take it through committee and through the House of Commons in 2006. So all of the laws we're talking about around right now, the Lobbying Act, the Conflict of Interest Act, uh, they were all partly my creation. And so I support them. But here's the thing is you can't, at the end of the day, you can't replace the, uh, what Churchill called the, the mighty power of a the little man walking into a little room with a little piece of paper and putting it in a little box. Uh, and that, of course, is the voter. Uh, the, the voter has to decide that they're not going to put up with it anymore. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you, you can have all of the law enforcement bodies you want coming out and making findings of guilt. But if the voter is not going to hold them accountable for it, then he's he is uh, has impunity. Um, there is a weird psychology among the political class in Canada that Justin Trudeau is special. That, yes, of course, if any other junior candidate had worn blackface, they would have been would not even been allowed to run on the party's ticket, let alone lead it. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, if anyone else had been found guilty of trying to stop a criminal prosecution, they'd immediately have to resign from cabinet. Many have resigned for much less. Um, that there would be criminal charges, uh, and there should have been criminal charges for taking a $200,000 vacation from someone who was at, who was successfully lobbying you for a fifteen million dollar grant? It's right in the criminal code. It's I think it's one section one twenty two. It's it's a, it's a criminal offense, um, but the RCMP didn't pursue it. Uh, and and I think it's for Justin. It's like he you know he's the son of a former prime minister, and he's youthful and bashful, and there's something kind of. Um, something there's sort of a, a, an, an instinct to protect and forgive him in among the political class that exists for no other political figure in this country um, and uh, you know i think it would take an actual psychologist to do an examination of how it is that uh, the system has been so forgiving of the many um, uh, uh, scandals and in some cases crimes that he's committed that's a really interesting uh, perspective. I, now, now I want to interview a psychologist and find out what what's going yeah, on I there. I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, there's something there. There's something there. Yeah, there is. Well, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about the 2019 election and the new um, conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. So, you know, it, it, to me, it, the conservatives won the 2019 election. You guys got the popular vote. You increase your vote count, your seats in, in every region. Uh, Andrew sure did a hell of a job standing up to a media that was pretty biased against him. Um, but the sort of consensus in the media was that the conservatives lost and that Andrew Scheer needed to go. And he sort of agreed with that and stepped down. Uh, from your perspective, why, why do you think that Justin Trudeau got reelected? And why do you think the conservatives failed to ultimately really sort of win in, in terms of at least getting a minority government? Well, you, you, you're quite right. The, I think Andrew Scheer deserves a lot of credit for the successes you enumerated. When he became leader, no one gave us a, a hope of even uh, reducing Trudeau to a minority. There was a talk that he would have the biggest majority ever after the longest honeymoon ever uh, of any prime minister. Look, he got 33% of the vote. It's the lowest share of the vote of any prime minister in Canadian history. Um, uh, many prime ministers have been defeated with by getting a larger share of the vote than he got winning it. Um, so um, he had an incredibly efficient distribution of votes. I don't think any party in Canadian history has gotten so many seats with so few votes. Um, and I don't say that, you know, as an excuse, it's obviously a tribute in part to their strategy and how they allocated the resources. But, you know, this is not a popular prime minister. Uh, and he, can, he, he returns to office with an extremely weak mandate. Um, and, but that said, uh, no majority prime minister had been defeated in, after just one term uh, since R.B. Bennett in the middle of the Great Depression. So history, uh, the math, the media, and a whole series of other things were against Mr. Scheer at the time. 
Uh, and um, I wish we had done better, as does he. But I think we can take solace in the fact that we didn't reduce them to a minority, and hopefully we can put an end to the government before they do too much damage. So uh, Aaron O'Toole is out to a really good start. I would say he's come out strong. Um, I, I would argue that he's probably not as conservative as Andrew Scheer in terms of his social views, but he seems like he really has hit a populist note. We saw that with his Labor Day message and, and his new Canada First economic strategy. So I was wondering if you could describe the ways that you think that Aaron O'Toole is, is different than Andrew Scheer and, and how the sort of strategy would be for Aaron O'Toole to become the next prime minister. Well, I think uh, Aaron has a lot of strong attributes. He's a, a veteran, a businessman. Um, he has strong roots in the parts of the country we need to win in order to form a majority government. I think you're, you're right. He has struck the right tone. Uh, I've always believed that the free market uh, is the best way to serve the working class and the poor. Uh, and uh, by contrast, we have is government-controlled corporatism that enriches those who have the most political influence at the expense of everyone else. Um, we, we can campaign against that, and I think it will be very popular, and yes, populist, to do so. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think he's off to a good start, and if he can continue with that momentum, uh, he'll be the next prime minister. One of the interesting things we're seeing, again, speculation with this throne speech, but the idea that the Liberals have moved so far to the left that the NDP doesn't really have a place anymore. And you see Jagmeet Singh, I mean, he, he was the real loser in the 2019 election. They just got decimated in Quebec and uh, reduced in, in British Columbia and, and a lot of other strongholds. It feels like there's not really a lot of room on the political spectrum for, for Singh at this point. And then you have Aaron O'Toole sort of putting forth this Canada first strategy. And, and, and when I say populist, I mean sort of speaking more to working Canadians, blue collar Canadians and people that might traditionally be part of that NDP voting base, mem union members and that kind of thing. Uh, do, do you think that that is part of the conservative strategy is to is to to capture some of those voters that may feel uh, not represented by a sort of cosmopolitan environmentalist uh, NDP movement? Yes, that, that has been a problem for the NDP for a long time now. You'll recall that the NDP used to be very strong in Saskatchewan, in uh, rural British Columbia, uh, in parts of Manitoba, um, and they lost that because they became an ultra-urban, uh, white-collar, elite um, socialist party, faculty club socialist party. Um, and they forgot about working class people and farmers. Um, and so where, where the roots of the party were among farmers and workers, it, they're now among activists and um, loudmouths and protesters and people who, who get paid to go around screaming and hollering and smashing things uh, and theorizing all day. And that's not a particularly big market to pursue. And that's why I think you see more and more working class people are attracted to the conservative message. Uh, and uh, we're winning. We win in places like Oshawa and in um, rural Saskatchewan and um, in the north, in northern um, northern Ontario. Uh, so a lot of mining towns and assembly line constituencies where that you the NDP used to take for granted are, are now becoming conservative because they see us rec representing their working class family values. Interesting. So do you have any any predictions for the fall? It's going to be an interesting time with uh, throne speech potentially going into an election and, and sort of more uncovering things from your committee, the finance committee with the we scandal. Any any predictions for the fall here? Yeah, I, I think Trudeau is going to do as much, will do anything he can to get an election. If uh, he can't get the proposition parties to vote down his speech from the throne uh, or his fall update, then he might just go to the governor general and say, I'm calling an election. The challenge for him will be that people will say, okay, why are you calling an election? If you've passed your throne speech, you passed your update, you passed all of your COVID spending, what would a majority give you that you don't already have? And of course, the only answer is it would allow him to lock in power before people find out how broke we are and before the scandals become fully public. 
Uh, and that's not a very good justification to ask people for a majority. Uh, you know, please give me a majority so I can cover up scandals, liberal scandals. Um, uh, I, I, it doesn't sound like much of a slogan. So I think he's in a he's in a bind. Uh, and uh, the only thing that can help him is if Jagmeet Singh really jumps in and tries to defeat him, which would be irrational for the NDP. And we know that might be the reason they do it. Interesting. And then just final question for you, Pierre. What, what do you think the biggest challenge for conservatives is? Conservatives are in this country and in bringing down this Trudeau government? Well, I think the biggest challenge is telling people the warning. And it's not a fun job, but warning people about the fiscal catastrophe that's coming and being, uh, you know, sounding that alarm before everyone realizes there's a fire. Um, you know, and uh, people say, well, why are you pulling the alarm? Well, it's because there's a fire. Well, we don't see the fire yet. Well, believe me, it's there and it's coming and you're going to see smoke and flames very soon. And so we have to be, you know, the bad guys who come and explain that things cost money and that we're eventually going to run out of it. Um, that is a very difficult job to play. At some point, we'll be vindicated and everyone will say, oh, they were right all along. But by then, it's too late. The damage is already done. So that is the biggest challenge. But, you know, we have to be happy warriors and get out there and make the case. It's the right thing to do. And the country will be better off for us doing it. Well, you uh, you certainly have your work cut out for you, especially considering, you know, all the things we talked about, how the sort of media adoring Justin Trudeau and seeing that he can do no wrong and the sort of liberal stronghold that exists in Ottawa. But Pierre, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining all of these concepts to us and help breaking down uh, everything from an insider perspective. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining the True North uh, Speaker Series. Great to be with you. Thank you so much.